you know, I think we just have to understand how change happens to realize that we're, we're in this moment of incredible scaling of solutions and to focus as much on that as on the, on the problems. It's something that is sometimes called the Stockdale Paradox, named after Admiral Stockdale, U.S. naval officer who spent seven years in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. And he said afterwards the only way to survive was to face the brutal facts of his reality and at the same time, paradoxically, never lose hope that things can and probably will change for the better. And that's what we need to do for our global society right now. You're listening to Transform Talks, a podcast about global supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, a fast-growing network of over 130,000 supply chain and manufacturing executives worldwide. Now on this show, I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some of the biggest names in supply chain and business, where we're going to be discussing topics around digitization, transformation, leadership, technology, business models, diversity, sustainability, and much, much more. Welcome back to Transform Talks. This week, my guest is Dr. Wayne Visser. Dr. Wayne Visser is a globally recognized academic, public speaker, and author. His work has taken him to over 77 countries in the past 30 years, and in that time, he's worked with over 150 clients, ranging from Coca-Cola, Dell, DHL, and HSBC to the United Nations Environment Program and the World Bank. Dr. Visser sees it as his mission to help bring about transformative thinking and action in business and society. His latest book, Thriving, The Breakthrough Movement to Regenerate Nature, Society, and the Economy, explores how innovation can regenerate nature, society, and the economy by taking us from degradation to restoration of ecosystems. I have to say that I'm so excited to sit down with this week's guest. As our regular listeners will know, we've covered the topic of sustainability on the show numerous times before, but what makes this conversation particularly special is that Dr. Visser is someone who has dedicated his entire life to learning what it takes to make a positive difference to our planet. As such, he boasts a breadth of knowledge on the subject that I have rarely seen elsewhere. During the episode, we discuss his love of forest bathing, the motivation behind writing his new book, and why the future will be better than we think. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Wayne. Welcome to Transform Talks. Thanks for being here. Great pleasure to be with you today. So, uh, you know, I've got a lot of questions for you. And over, you know, the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to be discussing essentially reframing uh, sustainability and also your book. But before we get started, I know that you're something of a biophile, which uh, for those of you that don't know, it means that you're a lover of nature. I mean, who isn't, right? But that love for nature really manifests itself in many ways. But I was curious about one practice in particular, something called Shinrin-yoku. Let me know if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Uh, or it's forest bathing. Talk to me about what that is. What are the benefits of this activity? And... Um, how did you get into it? Yeah, this is a, a, a Japanese concept, but it's uh, universal, really. And it's, it's talking about the benefits of spending time in forests. 
it's a similar idea to sunbathing, but instead of lying on a beach under the sun, you spend your time in uh, a natural forest. And there is quite a lot of research on this, on especially the health benefits, both physical and mental. It uh, essentially lowers our stress levels and gives us uh, lots of health benefits. And of course, it uh, it works best in a forest, but it can be actually any exposure to nature, whether that's walking in a park or even having having uh, plants in an office environment or a home environment. Uh, it just seems like we are naturally wired uh, to appreciate and to benefit from nature. Uh, the biologist E.O. Wilson uh, coined this as uh, biophilia, something that is... Uh, embedded in us as humans that we have a natural love for nature and i've just been lucky to be able to experience that in many many parts of the world in the amazon rainforest and some of the ancient rainforests of uh, malaysia of south africa and and every time i i'm in a forest i just feel more alive and i highly recommend it to everybody so now let's move to your book because uh, I, I want to hear a lot about this latest book. You've, you've written quite a few books, but let's talk about Thriving, uh, the breakthrough movement to regenerate nature, society, and the economy. Now, as I said previously, you've authored more than 40 books, I think, and I'm sure each and every one of them has a story behind it, but I'd like to know what the inspiration was behind writing this book in particular, and what lessons did you learn during the process of putting it together? Yeah, so I've been working for more than 30 years in sustainability now, especially working with business uh, as a consultant, uh, as an academic, uh, with organizations like KPMG, where I ran their sustainability services, and Cambridge, where I still run their business sustainability management course. And I got to the stage uh, where I realized that where we've got to in the last 30 years isn't working. So we've had sustainable development coined in 1987. We're seeing more than ever before, especially by business. And yet many of the trends are still headed in the wrong direction. If you look at biodiversity loss, if you look at, uh, of course, climate change, but even inequality, which is going up everywhere in the world. So something is not working. I sometimes say if you're a doctor, you need to judge your success by whether the patient is getting healthier or not. And at the moment, uh, the pre prescription of sustainability hasn't been enough to cure the patient. And the patient, of course, is our global society and nature. So something has to change. And I, I realized that one of the things is that we're simply not aiming high enough if you think about sustainability, it's actually quite a, an uninspiring concept. It's the idea to sustain, to continue, to survive. Well, that's like saying that my purpose in life is to breathe. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course, I need to breathe. I, need, I, I want to survive. But my purpose is something much more. I want to have a, a positive life. I want to make an impact. And so this book, Thriving, is all about looking for a different set of goals that is uh, what others call net positive. This is uh, the language of Paul Polman, former CEO 
of Unilever or regenerative. Uh, this is the language of Paul Hawken, who wrote the book Regeneration. And it's simply the idea that, you know, we need to redesign our economic system, our business institutions and our products and services so that the outcome of more economic activity, more consumption is actually a better world. And at the moment, uh, our current approach means that it's not. Having said that, the book is all about innovation and literally sharing hundreds of examples of how we are coming up with those solutions which will get us to a thriving future. And it's a, it's a very exciting time to be engaged in this agenda. There's a lot that you said there that I want to break down a little bit. I mean, I, I really like the fact that you talk about uh, reframing the way that we look at sustainability and the analogy that you give of just keeping a patient alive or, you know, is the patient getting better? I think you're absolutely right there. Uh, it's not just about sustaining what we've got because sustaining what we've got is not good enough. It's about improving what we've got. It's about getting better, right? It's not about getting same. It's about getting better. So I really, really like the way that you frame that. Now, one of the things that you also talk about in your book is you've made it very clear that in the past that we not only have to increase the pace of change, uh, but we also have to look at updating our current processes. Now, I know that you've worked with and spoken to numerous businesses during your career. So I want to ask you, especially given that this podcast is a lot about supply chain, how well do you think the supply chain industry is doing in, in this regard? It's a very good question because we do know that most of the impact is in the supply chain. When we, when we do life cycle assessments, uh, any uh, analysis of where, for example, carbon footprint is sitting shows that a lot of it is in the supply chain upstream and downstream, also in the customer use phase. But if you look at upstream, I think that we have a lot of work still to do. Our, our supply chains are almost by design unsustainable, very brittle, and what we've seen during COVID and other crises is that they're not very resilient. So what we've had is supply chains becoming more and more efficient over the last few decades, uh, just-in-time delivery, next-day delivery, all of this kind of thing. But that actually goes counter to what we see in healthy living systems, which is that you always have spare capacity uh, so that uh, you have flexibility. You always have decentralization rather than being dependent on single sources. Um, you always have diversification of solutions. So these are lessons, I think, that on supply chain we really still need to, to learn. And it's, it's tough within the current economic model because the current uh, approach is all about efficiency and a lot about centralization. And so we, we're, it's one of the challenges we have is how do, how do we redesign the way that we think about supply chains? We need to think far more in terms of networks, in terms of decentralized sources, localization where we can. 
it's not to say that again there aren't solutions so we're seeing some some great uh, solutions if you look at decentralized renewables solar and wind for example even take the extreme of of ukraine right now the uh, the most resilient form of energy there has been the uh, wind energy that they've got because you can't take it out in a single missile blast whereas uh, most of our centralized energy is highly vulnerable to that or if you look at uh, some of the technologies that are helping us on this like blockchain technology that helps us to track and trace uh, our supply chains and verify that they are sustainable all along the all along the line we look at innovations happening in textiles now where we're starting to redesign our sources of materials a company like radis cotton that is designing the first regenerative agriculture supply chain for cotton or if you look at what's happening with biomaterials and biofabrication um, this is very exciting we're, we're really looking at new materials made from algae made from bacteria from fungi that are bringing real solutions to to the problems we face but we we have a long way to go on making our supply chains sustainable let alone thriving i think at the moment there is also another element that we haven't talked about and perhaps maybe this is for another podcast but you talk about the upstream and downstream elements of supply chain but there's an also something that we as citizens can do from a consumer perspective in terms of uh, addressing the behaviors that we have as consumers. We've moved from an era, if I look back to say the time of my grandparents or even my dad who's 87, you know, he only ate things that were in season and they were local. It was just a part of his culture. Uh, whereas with me, if I wanted to eat strawberries in the middle of winter or tomatoes in the middle of winter or, you know, I mean, whatever, then uh, that has to be sourced somewhere else. I have to have the latest fashion because I don't know, you know, I'm just saying there's there's some work that needs to be done on this side too, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. As, as consumers, we, we have a role to play. We have impact. Uh, there are many choices we can make about where our energy comes from, where our food comes from, what that food is. You know, one of the most powerful things we can do is is move to more plant-based diets. This has huge positive impacts on biodiversity, on, on climate change, on water use, and on health. Uh, Oxford University shows we could cut uh, premature mortality by 20% globally if we move to more plant-based. Decisions about uh, transport, how we get around, whether we're driving electric or uh, public transport, whether we're flying, there are many, many things we can do um, opting for fair trade, for organic or bio. Uh, so we, we have our role to play. What I would say, though, is that we do need the whole system to change. So it's not that by changing a few light bulbs, we will become a thriving society. We do need government to play their role and we need business to change. We need to question the current model of uh, of economics that we have driving us and um you know it's it's all part of a complex system so you get tipping points happening where yes it could be that uh, a customer's behavior is one of the things that tips us towards a more sustainable alternative um, but it's one part of the system and uh, we all need to do everything we can you know, I, I lived through the transition from apartheid to democracy in South Africa. 
And people often ask, well, you know, what was it that caused the change? Was it Nelson Mandela? Was it uh, sanctions? And the truth of the matter is it was millions of actions taken by millions of people all around the world and within the country, and it took 40 years of fighting for that change. So we have to think about all changes in that way. It's an accumulation of change within the system which results then in very rapid change, these tipping points, and that's the exciting thing. We can have positive tipping points as well. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your documentary, Closing the Loop. You know, I was very impressed by all the businesses and initiatives that you featured in the film. But I have to say that one in particular really um, stood out for me, and that was uh, Radisa in South Africa. And what struck me the most uh, were the individual stories behind the people working at the company and, more importantly, their motivations for getting involved. So do you think that sustainability that or the sustainability cause needs to become better at showcasing these stories? Yes, the Redisa case, which is essentially uh, a, a tire um, manu- uh, recycling story, is very powerful because it shows that the circular economy can be very impactful on social problems as well as economic. So it's not only an environmental story. And that what we saw there and filmed in the documentary was how people with low incomes had their lives transformed by being part of this circular um, model that had been created for for tires. And I think the the lessons are that, you know, if we take circular economy, which is what the documentary is about, is that unless we can design this to be a solution for everyone, it ends up being a solution for no one, right? In the world today, we are Uh, now around about 7.5% circular globally. And that number has actually been going down year on year. So we're becoming less circular because we're consuming more stuff faster um, than we're uh, converting, starting to switch our production and consumption to circular approaches. So we have to think about uh, designing solutions in a way that they are solutions for everyone. Um, including many emerging countries, many low-income communities. And that's a real lesson for us because we've tended in this movement of sustainability to be quite northern and western um, and a little bit uh, providing solutions for middle-class and rich people. And that simply hasn't made the transformation. So it's a different way of thinking. Um, But again, we have some wonderful examples of frugal innovation, um, something like uh, free play, which emerged out of Africa, which uh, uh, creates technologies like radios, lighting systems, and even fetal heart rate monitors, which don't require any connection to the grid. They're using wind-up technology, so they don't even need batteries. So again, we have solutions, but we do need to think about the solutions being for everyone. Likewise, an important point is as we go through this this, this, this transition, uh, there will be winners and losers. And so when we talk about a just transition, that means taking care of the people who are negatively impacted by the transition. So what about all of those auto workers or what about the traditional farming um, that we have, which which is really disastrous for the planet? As we move to regenerative farming, how do we take care of those uh, those transitions as we 
as we get uh, more and more automation? How do we take care as people lose their jobs in oil and gas? How do we take care? So we really have to make this both a social and an environmental transition. 100%. 100%. Right. So I have one final question for you. In your book, Thriving, you state that the future will be better than we think. So for the longest time, sustainability has always felt like it was or it has relied on some level of fear mongering as its primary technique to motivate people to take action. So do you think that the movement would do well to start focusing more on the positives and communicating that to the public? Yes, I do. Uh, Again, over the last 30 plus years that I've been in the movement, there's been plenty of doom and gloom. And it's not unjustified. I mean, if you look at the facts, if you look at the science, we face some pretty scary challenges. Um, But what we've noticed is that you can't scare people into change. It just, it's not very effective. So what we have to do is not ignore the scale and urgency of the problems. We need to be transparent about that. But we also, at the same time, need to focus on the solutions on what people can and must do, um, on the innovations that are out there, that are starting to scale, and to make people realize that change isn't linear. I think uh, this is one of the the reasons why people lose hope, especially the young generation, right? They see the problems. They see solutions appearing to be going very slowly in their scaling. But all change happens on an exponential curve. So it starts slow and it accumulates, it generates uh, momentum. And then at some point, especially as the costs come down, it gets into a steep part of the the curve where there's an inflection point, the, the tipping point I'm talking about, and then it's extremely fast. And we're seeing this in a number of areas. I mean, it's definitely happening on energy. So we we will go to renewable energy and it's happening much faster than many people have predicted. Solar and wind are the cheapest form of new electricity everywhere in the world. So even though oil and gas is making a lot of money right now because of the crisis in in Ukraine, the the war, in fact their, their days are numbered because they simply will not be able to compete economically. We're seeing similar things happening uh, in the pipeline around uh, green hydrogen and green ammonia, which will completely transform many of the heavy industries. We're seeing it in the food industry, where not only are we seeing a, sh- a commitment to shift to regenerative and more and more people opting for plant-based, but technologies like cellular agriculture and especially precision fermentation will completely transform the food industry, again, much faster than people think because um, it will bring the cost down of um, non-meat alternatives. So, you know, I think we just have to understand how change happens to realize that we're, we're in this moment of incredible scaling of solutions and to focus as much on that as on the, on the problems. It's something that is sometimes called the Stockdale Paradox, named after Admiral Stockdale, U.S. naval officer who spent seven years in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. And he said afterwards the only way to survive was to face the brutal facts of his reality, 
and at the same time, paradoxically, never lose hope that things can and probably will change for the better. And that's what we need to do for our global society right now. Couldn't agree more. Now, before I let you go, I ask my, my guests the same final question, and I want to ask you too. I'm very curious, especially as you, you're an author of several books. What book would you say has had the biggest impact on your life, whether it's from a personal or professional standpoint, and why? I think if I were to pluck one out of the air, it would probably be The Turning Point, which was a book by Fridtjof Capra, who is a systems scientist, um, and he's he's worked through his whole career to really try to uh, synthesize the science of complex living systems. And this was a book in the 1980s where he he had these remarkable conversations with leaders in different disciplines, in health, in um, in economics, in physics, in um, you know all the things that were and, and and are shaping our society and showed that we were already developing these new approaches which is to to realize how we are a complex living system and uh, it gave me a lot of hope and uh, probably set me on on the track uh, that I that I followed in terms of sustainability but more especially to always uh, bring a systems thinking approach to this, uh, these, these challenges that we face. So, uh, and happily, I've, I've been in touch with him over the years and uh, had him on my podcast, and he continues to do fantastic work in this area. I want to thank you for being here on Transform Talks, for talking to us, and I would like to tell our audience to please check out your books, and hopefully we'll see you at the next podcast or the next event. Thanks very much, Maria. I've enjoyed the conversation. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I do hope you gained some valuable insight from this week's episode. To stay up to date with the latest developments, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn at Transform Talks. Also, if you don't already follow me on LinkedIn, please do so now. I'm always keen to connect with supply chain and business leaders from around the world. You can find me by searching for Maria P. Villablanca. And if you're lucky, I may let you know what the P in my name stands for. In the meantime, wishing you a great week ahead. And as always, for those of you listening, I'll catch you at the next one.